Hello, and welcome to the Metacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 154th episode of the Nauticast titled Father and Son, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 1, in which Tyrion Lannister has a real heart-to-heart with Dad, which results in them throwing that old pigskin around for a bit. It's a real heartwarmer, this chapter, isn't it, Emmett? I am enjoying your alternate universe, like Kevin Costner version of Storm of Swords that we've been leading every chapter with. Like the the Field of Dreams version of Storm of Swords where the families are getting along and there's like a wistful Neil Young song going on in the background. I love this version of Storm of Swords. It, alas, it, here we are with the real one. Alas. I mean, we could, I think this is just going to be a trend we're just going to continue. Like next week for Davos, he's going to be like sunning himself at the He's just fine too. Yeah. <laughs> right? He's just, he needs a little vacation. Am I right, folks? This was well-deserved. Cho- chose a tropical island on Blackwater Bay to do <laughs> vacation at. So I go definitely going to continue with this going forward. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not A Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Command the Kingsguard, Mark N, Sir Keith J, Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Rebelman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, Lord Jacob's Assistant, to the head of the king, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Worthy the East Bishops of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tits Dent, the Troglodyte Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer, Al- Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Herald of Cher, Ambassador of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the ADs, and Gentle Dems of and the Nauticast, Non Binary, Not an Army. Hardover the Wafer T. Well, A.A. Ron Dampair, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Town, Veneris of House Kulgarian, the First for Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overt, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portions of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Leonard Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpio of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard, Bounder, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshal Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Heron Hall. Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who has guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the blood royal and guardian the bone way. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Squire Matt S., future Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord, S- Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring double author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warness of the South, and the patron of free wheeling bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate. 
Lord Kristoff of Arendelle, official ice master and deliverer of the Valiant, pungent reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna. Lord Sir Septon Ruthers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice War, the Kingswood and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms. Sir Kel, contractor in charge of continually extending the small council table. Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones. Lord Anans II, and Lord Tyler, the prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter. Thank you to all of our not a small counselors. Thank you to all our counselors as always. And our spoilering, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Red Relu himself, a high lord who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, who asks, who has the best first chapter in the series? For example, John won ASOS, Bran won A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion won A Clash with Kings, etc. That's a good question. So uh, among a, a given POV, you know, what you have, you have their, their first chapters in each book that they're in. So which of those is the best? Who has the best first chapter to kick off a book? What do you think, Jeff? That's a good, good question. You know, it's kind of hard to beat Tyrion's first chapter in A Storm of Swords, right? When it comes to like best first <laughs> chapters. Mm-hmm. But the one that might beat it is Samuel's first chapter in A Storm of Swords, which starts with that devastating Samwell stopping Sam took another step. And then proceeds forward from there to the various points of Sam's memory of the Battle of the Fists of the First Men and finally his confrontation with the other and Sam becoming Sam the Slayer or Sam the Brave or whatever the moniker that Sam wants to utilize at the end of the chapter. And Sam just keeps moving forward despite all of the the, the terrible things that are that are going on around him. I, I do think it's some some ones are kind of like cheats. Like I think of like John Connington's first chapter in A Dance with Dragons, which is so goddamn good. But it's also one of two chapters, right? So I mean, it's kind of like sure. Uh, does that really count? Good point. I, I don't know for these kind of like one off, not one or one off POVs because John Connington will be in the Winds Winter almost certainly. Uh, but you know, Connington is a really good Melisandre's chapter in A Dance with Dragons. Similarly, like a really really good chapter. But uh, but yeah, I, I, for for a Storm of Swords specifically, I really think that Tyrion and Samo are the ones that really really knock it out of the park. Now I think we're coming up to Davos's first chapter next week, which is a very good chapter and sets up a lot of things. And weirdly enough, I think it doesn't pay off a lot of the a lot of things that Davos one sets up, especially with the religion side of things. But I'll save all those thoughts for when we get to that chapter next week. But, um, you know, most of these chapters start off with, with, with bangers. But, uh, yeah, I would say Tyrion and Sam in A Storm of Swords, John Connington and Melisandre, I guess, in A Dance of Dragons. Totally cheating, I know. What do you think, sir? Well, those are all great ones. I mean, the Sam one, I think, is almost objectively the correct answer. Mm-hmm. Just because I think that's, you know, possibly the best chapter in the books, full stop. That's definitely up there. I think, um, as far as the later books go... Theon's first chapter in Dance is really remarkable. That first Reek chapter, there's not mm. much that really happens in it, but that's one of those things, like I was saying about Jamie as a POV, that could have gone really wrong, bringing Theon back, bringing him back in this totally different guise, getting the audience to accept that, and then taking us through what's happening to him. Like, I know George, you know, wrote and rewrote a ton of A Dance with Dragons, and I imagine those chapters were a lot to write tonally. But that mm-hmm. first chapter, I'll never forget reading that first Theon chapter in Dance and seeing Reek and going 
what? I thought that guy was dead. I thought that was the twist. And then reading and then a few paragraphs in when he mentions Kyra and I'll never forget just like feeling my spine wither as I go, oh no, it's Theon. This is what's happened. Like that's amazing that George pulled that off, especially given the weight between those books, how long it had been since we've seen Theon. That's really remarkable. And it's like, it, you know, again, nothing happens in that chapter except Theon is let out of a room. But the, the, the tone of it and the way it brings you back is amazing. So I'd probably go with that one. I think it's a really good good point. Some of our, our fans, for those of you who are listening to our, our episodes, we do a, a weekly live stream episode. I did mention this last week. And I'll stop mentioning it. There won't be a theme going forward. But we did get a couple interesting comments. Uh, Rohane says, Sansa's first chapter in A Storm of Swords is, is a really good one. And I, and I think that's sure. actually a, objectively a really great choice. It's not quite as good. Well, it's hard being like, oh, which chapter is better, Samwa one or Sansa one? But I do think... Uh, Sansa's first chapter in Storm of Swords where she meets the Queen of Thorns and they, she has that amazing scene where she's trying to tell the Tyrells who um, who Joffrey is as uh, mm-hmm. as their fool is dancing and screaming the lyrics to the Bear and the Maiden Fair uh, is 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 quite a quite a good chapter and uh, and of course you know you also have that set up to uh, a really good interesting dialogue scene between Loras and Sansa which sets all of that up as they're moving towards. Uh, Towards towards the audience chamber that uh, not the audience chamber towards towards the uh, the dinner hall they're going to be at, uh, so yeah the, 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 that's a really good one as well. And of course Frank brings up as he should in every single episode Davos's first chapter in a Clash of Kings <laughs> being that uh, um, being the best chapter for uh, chapter opening for any uh, of the point of view point of views for uh, for a song of ice and fire. So yeah, great question. So thank you, Red Relu, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where you can also get show notes, bonus episodes like our upcoming analysis of the movie Waltz with Bashir, free merch, access to the Nata Slack, and more. Yes, indeed. And... Little treat for you folks here who are uh, tuning in for this this live stream episode, and we will announce this for our September update for all of our patrons. But we are kind of revamping our our long term stretch goal for our Patreon. Yeah, you know, Emmett, it was a year ago. I want to say, maybe if you remember this correctly, uh, we started this series on your favorite Winds of Winter, while well, your favorite A Song of Ice and Fire chapter. Known as the Forsaken. Do you remember this back in the day? Do you remember doing this? This, this very chapter? vaguely. What the uh, the 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 foreskin or something like that? I think <laughs> the, the chapter foreskin. Is called. I can't. So I can't good. recall correctly. That's so good. Yes, the the foreskin uh, by um, by A. A. Ron. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, so I, I was thinking. You know, how about we do this multi part series on my favorite chapter. In the Winds of Winter, at least the sample chapters that have been released so far. That is namely Theon's sample chapter, a.k.a. the Stannis point of view chapter in the Winds of Winter. Do you think that's something we can do? Yes or yes? Heck yes. Sounds amazing to me. I think that is something we can do indeed. So... Anyways, we're going to make this part of our stretch goal. So if we get this, if we get our Patreon on up to 1,050 total patrons or about 90-ish short at this point, we will do a multiple part analysis, multi-part analysis of Theon's The Winds of Winners sample chapters. So become a Patreon or be square. (laughs) But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Tyrion, he had drifted in and out of consciousness and finally awoke to find himself noseless and left alone in a dark room to die. 
He did not die, though. But that doesn't mean life is happy and full of joy, as we'll find out in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 1. He woke to the creak of old iron hinges. Oh, he croaked. At least he had his voice back, raw and hoarse though it was. The fever was still on him, and Tyrion had no notion of the hour. How long had he slept this time? He was so weak, so damnably weak. Ooh, he called again more loudly. Torchlight spilled through the open door, but within the chamber, the only light came from the stub of a candle beside his bed. When he saw a shape moving toward him, Tyrion shivered. Here in Mager's Holdfast, every servant was in the Queen's pay, so any visitor might be another of Cersei's cat's balls, sent to finish the work that Sir Mandon had begun. Well, similar to Catelyn's first chapter, it sure is great that things are going to be improving for Tyrion in this book from here, because this seems like a real low point, doesn't it? Let's see here. So we've got Tyrion still weak from his wounds and paranoid that Cersei is still out to get him. Yes, this is obviously the worst thing for Tyrion in this book. Alas, things are not quite as bad as Tyrion believes, as it's Bronn who's come for Tyrion this time. Bronn asks if Tyrion cut himself shaving, and Tyrion jests that, yeah, he did. Big-ass razor got his nose. Now let's talk a little bit about our man Bronn. The man is looking chic, with nice high boots, a cloak of green silk, and a bright green chain sigil stitched into the silken cloak. Dazzling. Tyrion wants to know where Bronn has been. It's been totally two weeks, bro. But Bronn's like, no, it's been four days. And he'd had arrived twice before, only to find Tyrion asleep and dead to the world. Not dead, though my sister, though my sweet sister did try. Perhaps Tyrion should not have said that aloud, but Tyrion was past caring. Cersei was behind Sir Mandis' attempts to kill him. He knew that in his gut. What's that ugly thing on your chest, Bronn? Bronn grinned. My knightly sigil. A flaming chain green on a smoky gray field. By your lord father's command. I'm Sir Bronn of the Blackwater now, imp. See you don't forget it. Annoyed, Tyrion says that he, Tyrion of House Lannister, promised Bronn a knighthood rather than his dad, who, by the way, sucks. He's also annoyed at Bronn getting rewarded for his service while Tyrion lost his nose. He asks if Tywin knighted Bronn, but no. Bronn got his knighthood from the High Septon and the three surviving members of the Kingsguard. Reminded of those beloved white cloaks, Tyrion mentions that Mandon died in the battle, leaving out the part where Podrick Payne shoved that dude into the river. He asks who else died. Well, not died, but Sander Clegane fled from the battle after Tyrion ordered him to attack. Not one of my better notions. Tyrion could feel the scar tissue pull tight when he frowned. He waved Bronn towards the chair. My sister has mistaken me for a mushroom. She keeps me in the dark and feeds me shit. Pod's a good lad, but the knot in his tongue is the size of Casterly Rock, and I don't trust half of what he tells me. I sent him to bring Sir Jaslyn, and he came back and told me he's dead. Him and thousands more, Bronn said. How? Tyrion demanded, feeling that much sicker. As to how Jaslyn died, well, our good Sir Jaslyn was ordering men back to the walls after Joffrey, after, Joffrey, after Joffrey bravely ran away from the battle. Sir Jaslyn had almost turned the tide, but then he got an arrow through the neck and was pulled from his horse and then ripped to pieces. Angry, Tyrion thinks that's a debt to lay at Cersei's feet. How about Joffrey, though? Was he in, you know, danger? Anything? No, not really, according to Bronn. He also wasn't wounded. Okay, fine. Who commands the gold cloaks now that Iron Hand is dead? 
Why, Sir Adam Marbrand, of course. He of the dreamy looks and long, red, flowing, beautiful hair. Tyrion next turns to the mountain clansmen. What happened to his friends? What happened to them? The stone crows, they are still in the Kingswood, with Shaka liking the woods more than the city. Tibbet and the burned men headed back to the Vale. Chella and the Black Ears turn up at the river gate, but the Red Cloaks chase them away as the good city folk threw shit at them as they fled. Tyrion is uh, pissed by this gratitude of the fine city folk and how they treated his warriors. They died for them. Anyways, Tyrion next asks for an update on Alayaya, which um, is, turns out to be a really terrible thing. Cersei did free Alayaya, of course, but only after she was stripped naked and then whipped bloody against a post. She was learning to read, Tyrion thought absurdly. Across his face, the scar stretched tight, and for a moment it felt as though his head would burst with rage. Aliaya was a horror, true enough, but a sweeter, braver, more innocent girl he had seldom met. Tyrion had never touched her. She had been no more than a veil to hide Shay. In his carelessness, he had never thought what that role might cost her. I, I, I promised my sister I would treat Tommen as she treated Aliaya, he remembered aloud, as he felt as though he might wretch. How can I scourge an eight-year-old boy? But if I don't, Cersei wins. <laughs> First, but definitely not the last time in A Storm of Swords, but obligatory. But Tyrion is good! The thing is, is that Tyrion doesn't have Tommen anymore. The Kettleblacks relieved him of that burden from Castle Rosby. Though this is a blow to Tyrion, he feels quite happy that he doesn't have to carry out the whipping of an eight-year-old boy. Especially a boy that he liked a fair amount. But wait, the Kettleblacks were Tyrion's creatures. What happened there? Well, Bronn was matching Cersei's coin, but Ozzy and Osfried Kettleblack were indicted for doing a very brave amount of fucking nothing during the Battle of the Blackwater. My hirelings betray me, my friends are scourged and shamed, and I lie here rotting, Tyrion thought. I thought I won the bloody battle. Is this what triumph tastes like? <sighs> Maybe. Next, Tyrion asked for an update on Stannis. Bronn reports that Stannis' men fled the battle after Tywin, no, wait, Lord Renly, the terrorist, arrived on the battlefield. They turned cloak to Renly during the battle. Upset that he was upstaged by a dead Renly, Tyrion asked how Stannis escaped. Why he and some of his loyalists got out via Lysenny ships out on the bay. Great, now do Rob Stark, Bronn. What's he been up to? Bronn, who apparently at this point is doing a nightly news segment, says the Northmen are burning their way down towards Duskendale, and that Tywin has deployed Randall Tarly to stop him. Bronn thought he might join up as Randall was a good soldier, and gave out plunder to his troops. That Bronn was considering this sends Tyrion. He tells Bronn to stick around, as he's captain of the Hand's Guard. Yeah, but Tyrion isn't the Hand. Well, I, that, that, that doesn't matter. If Bronn is still interested in gold, then Tyrion has a task for him. What do you know of Sir Mandon Moore? Bronn laughed. Well, I know he's bloody well drowned. I owe him a great debt, but how to pay it? He touched his face, feeling the scar. I know precious little of the man, if truth be told. He had eyes like a fish and he wore a white cloak. What else do you need to know? Everything, Tyrion said, for a start. What he wanted was proof that Sir Mandon had been Cersei's, but he dare not say so aloud. In the Red Keep, a man did best to hold his tongue. There were rats in the walls and little birds who talked too much and spiders. Help me up, he said, struggling with his bedclothes. It's time I paid a call on my father, and past time I let myself be seen again. Bronn makes fun of Tyrion's facial beauty, which, um, kind of a dick move, brah. Tyrion self-deprecates anyhow, and then asks if Marjorie Tyrell is in town. She is not. 
but she's in route. There are lots of Tyrells and Reachmen in King's Landing, though, and they are having very lots of much sex. They spit on me and buy drinks for the Tyrells. Tyrion then calls for Podrick as he gets out of bed. When the boy comes scrambling in, asking what Tyrion needs, Tyrion tells him he needs some clean clothes to wear. He's leaving this cell. It takes three men, or two men and one boy, Maester Franken, Bronn, and Podrick to dress Tyrion given all of his wounds. The Maester changes Tyrion's dressing to his shoulder, and then, which of course sends a fury of pain through Tyrion's body. He ends up drinking a cup of dream wine for pain relief and a fortification, but he finds himself dizzy from drink and probably from pain too. Bronn, Tyrion, and Podrick then make their way down stone steps, passing by a servant girl who looks terrified at Tyrion's visage. Arriving at Maegar's Holdfast, they find Sir Baron Trant on guard with the drawbridge raised. Tyrion orders it lowered, but Marin retorts that the queen orders it raised at night when she sleeps. The queen's asleep, and I have business with my father. There was magic in the name of Lord Tywin Lannister. Grumbling, Sir Marin Trant gave the command and the drawbridge was lowered. A second Kingsguard knight stood sentry across the moat. Sir Osmond Kettleblack managed to smile when he saw Tyrion wildly toward him. Fail it stronger, my lord. Much? When's the next battle? I can scarcely wait. They make their way over to serpentine steps that go up Mager's Holdfast. Tyrion realizes that he can't climb them given his wounds, so he swallows his pride and asks Bronn to carry him, hoping that no one sees his shame. The Outer Ward has lots of Reachmen in and around, folks hanging out, waiting for the King Joffrey's wedding to Marjorie. Is Tyrion planning to attend? Ravening Weasnos could not keep me away. This, there was this to be said for weddings over battles. At least it was less likely that someone would cut your nose. Savor that, thought Tyrion. Savor it. When they reach the Tower of the Hand, Tyrion sees his men on guard, and they admit Tyrion into the tower. On the way up the stairs, they encounter Sir Adam Barbrand, who is coming down. Surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, Adam acts, sh acts chivalrous chivalrously towards Tyrion. My lord, he said, how good to see you on your feet. I'd heard rumors of a small grave being dug. Me too. Under the circumstances, it seemed best to get up. I hear your commander of the city watch. Shall I offer congratulations or condolences? Both, I fear, Sir Adam smiled. Death and desertion have left me with some 4,400. Only the gods and Littlefinger know how we are to go on paying wages for so many. But your sister forbids me to dismiss any. Still anxious, Cersei? The battle's done. The gold cloaks won't help you now. Do you come from my father? Tyrion asked. Indeed, Adam had come from Tywin, and he left Tywin in a really shitty mood. You see, Tywin had ordered Adam to find Tyrek Lannister, but cousin Tyrek remains missing. Bronn thinks Tyrek is dead as Jaslyn Bywater looked hard for him. He tells Adam to give up the search, but Tywin is stubborn when it comes to his blood. And so is Adam as a result. Anyways, Tyrion can find the happiest man in Westeros in his solar. My solar, thought Tyrion. I believe I know the way. The way was up more steps, but this time he climbed under his own power with one hand on Pod's shoulder. Bronn opened the door for him. Lord Tywin Lannister was seated beneath the window, writing by the glow of an oil lamp. He raised his eyes at the sound of the latch. Tyrion. Calmly, he laid his quill aside. I'm pleased you remember me, my lord. Tyrion released his grip on Pod, leaned his weight on his stick, then waddled closer. Something is wrong, Tyrion knew at once. Sir Bronn, Lord Tywin said. Podrick, perhaps you had best wait without until we are done. Bronn gives Tywin an insolent look but bows and leaves with Podrick practically running out of the room. 
As they depart, Tyrion wonders what lies Cersei has fed Tywin about Tyrion, and how about we behold this Tywin Lannister now? How does he look since the last time we saw him? The Lord of Castle Rock was as lean as a man twenty years younger, even handsome in his own austere way. Stiff blonde whiskers covered his cheeks, framing a stern face, a bald head, a hard mouth. About his throat he wore a chain of golden hands, the fingers of each clasping the wrist of the next. That's a handsome chain, Tyrion said, though it looked better on me. Tywin ignores Tyrion's words and asks if Tyrion should be out of his sickbed. Yes, yes, Tyrion should. He is sick of being in that sickbed. As to why he's there as opposed to a room with a view, it's just because the Tyrells are in town and the Red Keep is crowded. That's all. Tywin Pinky swears it. Tyrion notes that everyone is in town for the wedding, and when will those bells sound, my lord? Joffrey and Marjorie shall marry on the first day of the new year, which, as it happens, is also the first day of the new century. The ceremony will herald the dawn of a new era. A new Lannister era, thought Tyrion. Oh, bother, I fear I've made other plans for that day. Did you come here to complain of your bedchamber and make your lame japes? I have important letters to finish. Important letters, to be sure. Some battles are won with swords and spears, others with quills and ravens. Hmm, weird. It's, this is a reread podcast, but I don't know what Tywin is referring to here. Whatever could that mean, my lord Tywin? Some won with swords and spears and others with letters. Who who are you writing to? Are you right? Who are you, who might you be writing to? It's probably not important. Still, Tywin isn't about Tyrion's reproaches. He visited Tyrion's sickbed when it seemed like Tyrion would die. But why did Tyrion dismiss Maester Balabar? Because Balabar was trying to keep Tyrion insensate. False, Tywin declares. Balabar was a healer, and Cersei sent him to look after Tyrion when she feared for his life. Feared that I might keep it, you mean? Doubtless that's why she's never once left my bedside. Don't be impertinent. Cersei has a royal wedding to plan. I am waging a war, and you have been out of danger for at least a fortnight. Lord Tywin studied his son's disfigured face, his pale green eyes unflinching. Though the wound is ghastly enough, I'll grant you. What madness possessed you? Why, well, the foe was at the gates with a battering ram. If Jamie had led the soldiery, you'd call it valor. Call this the helmets are hardly heroic defense, but Tywin knows better. JB would not be so dumb as to remove his helmet. P.S. You killed the guy who took your nose, right, Tyrion? Yes, that dude is very quite awesomely dead, Tyrion says, but he thinks that Podrick was the one who did Manton Moore in. He is very curious about who sent Manton Moore, though, and he totally knows who sent him, right? No. Anyways, why is Tywin here rather than fighting Robb Stark or Stannis? He's here because they don't have the ships to assault Dragonstone, but Lord Paxter Redwine is bringing his fleet to assist with all of that. As for the Starks, Tywin sent Gregor Clegane and Randall Tarly to deal with that northern host descending on Duskendale. Duskendale? There was nothing at Duskendale worth such a risk. Had the young wolf finally, bl had the young wolf finally blundered? It's nothing you need trouble yourself with. Your, your face is pale as death, and there's blood seeping through your dressings. Say what you want and take yourself back to bed. What I want? Tyrion's throat felt raw and tight. What did he want? More than you could ever give me, father. For now, though, Tyrion deflects and asks about Littlefinger being made Lord of Harrenhal. True, but it's an empty title so long as Roose Bolton holds the castle for Robb Stark. Hmm, hmm. 
Hmm. Anyways, Littlefinger wanted the title, and he did good service by arranging the Marjorie Joffrey match. Um, that was Tyrion's idea, point of fact. He thinks but doesn't say. Regardless, Littlefinger is up to something. Anyways, about paying off those debts. Time for Tyrion to benefit, baby. Tywin says, fine, whatever. What do you want, Tyrion? A little bloody gratitude would make a nice start. Lord Tywin stared at him, unblinking. Mummers and monkeys require applause. So did Ares, for that matter. You did as you were commanded, and I am sure it was to the best of your ability. No one denies the part you played. The, the part I played? What nostrils Tyrion had left must surely have flared. I saved your bloody city, it seems to me. Most people seem to feel that it was my attack on Lord Stannis's flank that turned the tide of battle. Lords Tyrell, Rowan, Redwine, and Tarly fought nobly as well. And I'm told it was your sister Cersei who set the pyromancers to making the wildfire that destroyed the Baratheon fleet. <laughs> well, that is real fucking bold of you, Tywin, to claim that it was you who won the battle. Tyrion is understandably embittered by this turn in the conversation and voices that embitterment. Tyrion then grudgingly praises Tyrion's chain as a clever stroke, and the Dornish alliance was also Tyrion's idea as well, Tywin concedes. But Tywin dislikes that Tyrion gave up a Lannister to the Dornish as a hostage. But no matter, they'll have their own Dornish hostage as soon as the Dornish come to King's Landing to take up their council's seat. Would that a council seat were all Martell came to claim, Lord Tywin said. You promised him vengeance as well? I promised him justice. Call it what you will. It still comes down to blood. Not an item in short supply, surely. I splashed through lakes of it during the battle. Tyrion saw no reason not to cut to the heart of the matter. Or have you grown so or have you grown so fond of Sir Gregor that you cannot bear to part with him? Well, per Tywin, Gregor is quite useful as a monster, and hey Tyrion, you too have monsters in your employ, like Bronn and the clansmen. Tyrion thinks that's a good point, but hey, maybe like you can get other monsters, Dad? Maybe? But seriously, Tywin's got all these letters to write, so get the fuck lost, Tyrion. Tyrion rose on unsteady legs, closed his eyes for an instant as a wave of dizziness washed over him, and took one shaky step towards the door. Later, he reflected that he should have taken a second, and then a third. Instead, he turned. What do I want, you ask? I'll tell you what I want. I want what is mine by rights. I want casterly rock. Tywin's mouth grew hard. Your brother's birthright? Tyrion corrects Tywin. Jaime cannot inherit as he's a Kingsguard knight, even if Tywin won't acknowledge it. Tyrion is Tywin's son and the lawful heir. Sorry, not sorry, Dad. Lord Tywin's eyes were a pale green flecked with gold as luminous as they were merciless. Casterly rock, he declared in a flat, cold, dead tone. And then, never. The word hung between them, huge, sharp, poisoned. I knew the answer before I asked, Tyrion thought. Eighteen years since Jamie joined the Kingsguard, and I never once raised the issue. I must have known. I must have always known. Why? He made himself ask, though he knew he would rue the question. You ask that? You who killed your mother to come into the world? You are an ill-made, devious, disobedient, spiteful little creature full of envy, lust, and low cunning. Men's laws give you the right to bear my name and display my colors since I cannot prove that you are not mine. 
to teach me humility, the gods have condemned me to watch you waddle about wearing that proud wine that was my father's sigil and his father's before him. But neither gods nor men shall ever compel me to let you turn Castlebrock into your whorehouse. Tyrion suddenly realizes why Tywin is so angry at him. Cersei had told Tywin about Aliyaya. Tywin doesn't give a shit about the sex worker's name. P.S. What was the name of the whore that Tyrion had married when he was a boy? Tysha. He spat out the answer defiant. And that camp follower on the Green Fork? Why do you care? He asked, unwilling to even speak Shay's name in his presence. I don't. No more than I care if they live or they die. It was you who had Yaya whipped. It was not a question. Tywin basically shrugs his shoulders. Tyrion threatened Tommen, or so Cersei said. Was that a lie? Not a lie exactly, but Tyrion was trying to keep Aliyaya safe. To save a whore's virtue, you threatened your own house, your own kin. Is that the way of it? You were the one who taught me that a good threat is more telling than a blow. Not that Joffrey hasn't tempted me sore a few hundred times. If you're so anxious to whip people, start with him. But Tommen, why would I harm Tommen? He's a good lad, and my own blood. As was your mother. Lord Tywin arose abruptly to tower over his dwarf son. Go back to bed, Tyrion, and speak to me no more of your rights to Castle Rock. You shall have your reward, but it shall be one I deem appropriate to your service and station. And make no mistake, this was the last time I will suffer you to bring shame onto House Lannister. You are done with whores. The next one I find in your bed, I'll hang. Fuck, talk about one of the most devastating dialogue scenes in this book. Wow, what a start to Tyrion's arc and a storm of swords. And that is the synopsis to Tyrion won a storm of swords. What did you think, sir? Tyrion was the protagonist of A Clash of Kings. He had the most chapters by far. He was the hand of the king presiding over the seat of power like Ned before him, and the book built to his last stand at the Battle of Blackwater. Unlike Ned, he made it out of the book, or most of them did anyway, but you can't exactly call it a happy ending. Tyrion's story in Storm of Swords is about what it feels like to not be the protagonist anymore. It feels like the second half of the story begun in Clash, the mirror image. We had the rise, and now we have the fall. This chapter grounds that arc in Tyrion's relationship with his father Tywin, and their showdown is one of the big, dramatic pivot points of the series. The only bad thing I can say about this chapter is that it sets the bar so high that the next few Tyrion chapters will have trouble reaching it. That's just how good it is. You're right about that, and there's been this kind of, like... You know, it's just a lot on Twitter, especially, but there's been this larger movement in the Song of Ice and Fire fandom and really culture as a whole to strip complex characters in fiction of nuance and assign them a value on strict binaries of good or bad or hero or villain. And in the Song of Ice and Fire fandom, this character who stands at the greatest crossroads of this shitty cultural trend is Tyrion Lannister. But what this chapter does is stand athwart those binaries, asking readers to stop trying to assign Tyrion into a fucking D&D alignment chart. What Tyrion wants readers to do is to get past those binaries and look deep into the character of Tyrion Lannister. And frankly, George wants us to look deep into the character of Tywin Lannister too. That said, I'm fairly confident that George doesn't want readers to leave with Dr. Manhattan's I understand without condoning or condemning mantra regarding these characters. 
were intended to look deep into the complex psychologies and backgrounds of Tyrion and Tywin and respond to it like all great art should make us do, respond to things. But to get to that devastatingly emotional dialogue scene where we understand who Tyrion and Tywin are at their root levels, George provides us a news dump, a series of events outside of Tyrion's purview and control, which pushes the dwarf towards one of the best conversation scenes in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. When we covered Jamie one with Shiloh, she pointed out how his story in this book plays off Tyrion's in interesting ways. Jamie one opens with him being let out of his cell. Tyrion one opens with the creak of his door opening. The Lannister brothers build to a confrontation at the end of the book, when Jamie comes to let Tyrion out of yet another cell and reveal the terrible truth about Tysha and their father. Here at the beginning, we get a mirror image of that scene. Instead of Jamie, it's Bronn. And while Jamie will have his own mutilation to share when he frees Tyrion, handless and noseless the, Nan- the Lannister boys, Bronn immediately makes fun of Tyrion's wound. And this sets the pattern for how Tyrion will fit into the new Game of Thrones in King's Landing. Everything he did as hand will be swept under the rug. The game changed while I lay rotting in my bed, and no one will tell me the rules. With Tywin back in town, no one has any incentive to support Tyrion. Varys told him that power resides where people believe it resides. In the last book, people believed Tyrion was in charge. So he was. Now no one believes he's in charge. So he isn't. Exactly, and with Tyrion's constant meditations about his mind being his weapon and Varys' shadow on a wall, ding, monologue echoing on the backdrop of Tyrion's chapters. Remember, one part of that whole monologue was Varys musing about whether knowledge is power. We're at a place where Tyrion is in the dark. That darkness is actual and metaphorical in these chambers, here with Tyrion alone in the dark and also not knowing what's transpiring around him in the greater whole of Westeros. This is one of those spots where I look at Tyrion and see how Tyrion's love of learning is not one of those love of knowledge for knowledge's sake type of deals. Like Tyrion's not really interested in like, ah, yes, I know the great number of many things for the betterment of the world. Because in a Lannister world, knowledge is power. And Tyrion especially used his mind in the Clash of Kings to aid his rise to power as Hand of the King. But Tyrion, as he'll later say, has been kept in the dark and fed shit. He's lost his power, information that he can turn to power, in other words. And to judge by how Tywin treats him later, this was intentional on his father's part. Tywin is also a believer of this idea that knowledge is power, and what he knows, as opposed to what people don't know, allows grants him power over others. And Tywin will not tolerate any rival to his power. So I imagine that the idea was that Tywin was consolidating power within the city And to do that, he isolated Tyrion politically by keeping him in the dark and out of the news. Tyrion's arc in A Storm of Swords is quite the contrast to the Tyrion in love with the Game of Thrones for its own sake back in A Clash of Kings. That Tyrion was gravely wounded only aided in Tywin's efforts to strip his son of all vestigers of his former power. So instead of demonstrating his courage that he went out there, he fought, he got this wound, instead Tyrion's wound becomes a source of mockery. It's woven into the narrative around his disability. You're a freak, and that wound just further proves it. Bronn, by contrast, looks better than ever. His hair is freshly washed and brushed. His belt, boots, and cloak are of much higher quality than before. That's bad news for Tyrion. It means someone else is taking care of Bronn, taking care of him better than Tyrion ever did. Bronn now fits the image Tyrion was never able to live up to. This is how the winners of the battle want the world to see them. 
The biggest sign of that is the sigil across Bronze Chest, the flaming chain of the Blackwater decked out in wildfire green. It's Sir Bronn now, and don't you forget it. That chain is a perfect symbol for Tyrion's story in this book. He doesn't get credit for saving the Lannister cause with that chain. Instead, that image now belongs to Tywin, who gave Bronn the knighthood that Tyrion promised him. So Tywin has taken his victory away, and he's also taken another chain, the Hand's Chain, that Tyrion will use to strangle Shay, the other lowborn person in his service. Storm is all about literal and figurative chains. Bronn's words send the same message as his appearance. You have been replaced. The power structure you built has collapsed. Now we learn that Jocelyn Bywater was killed in the battle. Not by Stannis' men, though. By his own men. The gold cloaks as they broke and followed Joffrey. This resonates across Storm of Swords. From the Night's Watch mutiny to the Red Wedding, everybody's betraying everybody else in this book. But it has particular significance for Tyrion. He too feels betrayed. He wasn't torn down by Stannis after all, but by his own family. His reaction to Bywater's death is telling. He thinks, another debt to lay at Cersei's door. It's linked in his mind to his wound, all part of the same grievance. The Lannisters treat everything as just ammunition against each other. After all, he warned her what would happen if she pulled Joffrey back. Now Bywater has been replaced by Tywin's crony, Adam Marbrandt. Tyrion realizes he's lost the gold cloaks. What about the clans? He's lost them too. Tywin refused to pay them, and the people of the city drove them off. So much for the Lannisters paying their debts. As Tyrion thinks, the clansmen died to hold the city, as he almost did. He's rejected by both his father and his people, just like the clansmen were. As he thinks, whilst Tyrion lay drugged and dreaming, his own blood has pulled his, had pulled his claws out, one by one. Tyrion is lost in paranoia and alienation, stronger chains than the ones Jaime wears. It's a result of his isolation. He doesn't even know what time it is as the chapter starts. All he can ask is who goes there, like the opening line of Hamlet. Even seeing Bronn's shadow makes him shiver. He thinks it's one of Cersei's servants come to kill him, like Stannis' shadow killed Renly. Tyrion was almost assassinated, and he thinks his own sister was responsible. The personal is always political for Tyrion. Bronn brings that home, brutally. Tyrion wants Alayaya freed now that Joffrey is safe. Bronn says she was set free, shoved out the gate, naked and bleeding, after being whipped. We sit up in shock, just as Tyrion does, because this is a sudden shift in tone. Politically speaking, it makes sense that Tyrion lost the watch and even Bronn. But this? The torture and humiliation of a bystander? There's no way to sugarcoat this as just part of the transition. No way to make it look pretty like Bronn's fresh haircut and new boots. This is cruelty. Deliberately over-the-top cruelty, because that's the political signature of Tywin Lannister. And it's how he handles his family life as well. Remember, this is how he took control of House Lannister. After his father Tytos died, Tywin paraded his father's mistress naked through town. He rules his children's bodies just as ruthlessly, along with those of any women unfortunate enough to cross Tyrion's path. He uses them as public examples of his power to get people to believe that power resides with him. And he believes that's more important than the well-being of his victims. Taisha found that out. Now Alayaya has as well. Tyrion thinks it was Cersei at first, and he has reason to think that. But hey, she learned about the spectacle of fearsome acts from Dad. And so did Tyrion. For a moment, all he can process is the horror of it. A sweet girl who was learning to read 
who suffered because of him. Because he wanted Shay so badly, he refused to think of the cost. Then he remembers the other side of the coin. His promise to pay back any harm to Aliyaya with the same harm done to Tommen. You remember Tommen, the sweet little kid who loves kittens and hates beets? Get ready to whip him. <laughs> Tyrion is sick at the thought of scourging his innocent nephew, but he prepares himself to do it. Because if not, then Cersei wins. That, that really reveals how much Tyrion has bought into the competitive kill-or-be-killed worldview that animates his father. Even as he's sickened by the results, Tyrion just doesn't know any other way to operate. He's secretly relieved when it turns out he's lost control of Tommen as well. I mean, this is a loss of power like the rest, but it means he doesn't bear direct responsibility. He gets to keep his hands clean. Those bloody realities of power are papered over by the glorious image. As Tyrion thinks, after all his careful planning, he was outdone by Renly's armor, by a dead man, and now people are just going around praising the Tyrells. <laughs> he sums it up in his thoughts. My hirelings betray me, my friends are scourged and shamed, and I lie here rotting. I thought I won the bloody battle. Is this what triumph tastes like? It does for the Lannisters, man. And I think there's such an amazing dynamic that George has here in Tyrion's first chapter in Storm, because let's face it, this book is framed within the triumph of House Lannister. As we covered last week with Catelyn, the Lannister star is waxing as the Stark and Baratheon stars are waning given events on the Blackwater and the Southern Alliance that's been forged. So at the macro strategic political level, we are approaching the apex of Lannister power. That is that we're not even at the point where the Lannister star is shiniest here. And still, when you get past that ivory tower of the hand and down to the individual person level, the Tyrians and Lyses of the world are miserable. Thanks, Dad. I think a, a miserable Tyrion Lannister, I mean, this might be cruel, but, but in terms of like literature, I think I, I saw it recently that you need to be cruel to your characters. But I think a miserable Tyrion Lannister is the exact correct focus here because, God, it would be so insufferable to have Cersei being the point of view of this chapter and the start of the, the triumph gloating here. But the greater dynamic of, is this really a victory for Tyrion? is something that's really good. Because from Tyrion's perspective, it looks like he lost just about everything. His power base, his friends, the credit for victory, and of course, his nose. Now, A Song of Ice and Fire is not some sort of morality play where good deeds are rewarded and evil deeds are punished. And Tyrion is more is cynical enough to know this. However, what he might not be seeing is that these are the consequences of supporting the bad side, of keeping a monster in the form of Joffrey in power, delaying Stannis just long enough for Tywin to claim to arrive to claim his victory and supplant Tyrion. This is what working for selfish assholes feels like. I mean, come on, you folks have all worked in retail or some sort of world where you've had some boss, some toxic asshole who takes credit for the good deeds that you do. Your friends get fired and your other friends get promoted away from you to isolate you. This is why working for Joffrey and his true benefactor Tywin was never going to work out in the long term for Tyrion. Victory was always going to be bitter because that's what working for the villains of the story does. That's what working for assholes does to you. Ultimately, though, like I was saying earlier, this information dump and Tyrion's emptiness is works kind of as a catalyst for him to move on. Not like emotionally, of course, but physically, he's moving on. Exactly. All of this convinces Tyrion that it's past time for him to get the hell out of this room and rejoin the Game of Thrones. It's his rebirth, like Jaime. He even has Podrick at his side, who is later squire to Jamie's companion Brienne. 
But the parallels kind of break down there. Jamie had that nice pale pink dawn and bird song to greet him. Nothing like that for Tyrion. He's being reborn into a nest of vipers. Jamie was weaker for his time in the Tully dungeons, but Tyrion is still so woozy he can't dress himself. Pus and blood are leaking from his wounds. Jamie was drunk, but he was kind of having fun with it. He was kind of <laughs> enjoying being drunk for the first time in a while. Tyrion is drunk on dream wine to numb the pain. I think that sums up the kind of the different positions they're in right now. The first human Tyrion meets outside his room is a serving girl who stares at him with wide eyes. As with Bronn's insults, this sets the pattern. Tyrion is very sensitive to lower-class women in particular reacting negatively to his appearance. We learned that back in Book 1 when he thought to himself, There was a look the girls got in their eyes sometimes when they first beheld the lordling they'd been hired to pleasure. A look that Tyrion Lannister did not ever care to see again. And now he's seeing it again. Now the looks will be even worse than ever. The dwarf has risen from the dead, he thinks, but there's no joy in it, because he's uglier than ever, according to him, and the world will deny him dignity on that basis. The next challenge is the Kingsguard. This is also how Tyrion's story began in Clash of Kings, with Mandon Moore guarding the council chamber. Then, as now, there was magic in the name of Lord Tywin Lannister. But is there magic in Tyrion's name? Only if Tywin approves of him. Tyrion's authority derives from Dad, and so does his identity. Marin Trant grumbles and steps aside. Osmond Kettleblack knows how to play his role a little better. <laughs> he smiles and inquires after Tyrion's health, but Tyrion can tell it's a performance, so it's no comfort. And I think we've all been there if we've just come off something embarrassing or humiliating, a setback of some kind, and everyone is being pretend nice. That can just make <laughs> us even angrier, because you can just tell that it's not genuine. Same with Tywin's guards. Tyrion knows these men, and they know him, but they won't look at his face for long. Tyrion is more alone than ever before. Adam Marbrand treats Tyrion more warmly than the rest. He's like Garland Tyrell. You know, he's the kindest member of the group of snakes that's looking to bite you. <laughs> he's the nicest one. <laughs> Sir Adam at least knows what it's like to have the other lions growling at you. Cersei won't let him dismiss any gold cloaks. Even in victory, she's as paranoid as Tyrion. They never learned how to be happy from Dad, because he's never been happy, not since Joanna died. Tywin, meanwhile, is pissed off that the Gold Cloaks still can't track down his nephew Tyrek, vanished during the riot in Book 2. This, of course, is here to remind the reader about it, so it's not out of nowhere when we meet <laughs> Tyrek again, but it also ties directly into the themes of this chapter. Bronn says they should give up the search, but Adam Marbrand says that Tywin is stubborn where his blood is concerned. He will have Tyrek back, alive or dead. And that sums up Tywin's relationship to his family. He keeps them close, but more as possessions than people. He doesn't want Tyrek back because he loves and misses his nephew. He wants Tyrek back because Tyrek is his, damn it, and losing Tyrek makes him look weak. So, dead or alive. Getting back Tyrek's corpse serves the same purpose as getting him back alive. Making Tywin look strong again. That's all he cares about. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And, you know... There's this character here, this this character who's somewhat compelling. It's this guy is Sir Adam Marbram. Call this Micah's minor moment corner of the chapter yeah. when it comes to these types of things. As our our, our patron Micah is as a huge fan of the minor characters in a song of ice and fire, and follow him on on Twitter. I think it's Micah underscore Clark, um, Micah underscore of Clark, I believe on, on Twitter. He, he keeps a good tally of these these types of characters. Adam Marbran is framed in similar lenses Garland Terrell, which you pointed out, which is an excellent catch, sir. And we're sympathetic to Adam Marbran as a result. He jests with Tyrion, doesn't take himself too seriously, and hey, he's not a monster like Amory Lordshire or Gregor Kilgain, right? He's a totally good dude, right? 
Well, no, he's, he's not. Or at least he's a dude who's helping to legitimize an illegitimate regime. If Tywin Lannister's retinue was all Gregor Clegane's and Amory Lorch's, it'd be way, way easy to paint the Lannisters as unmitigated villains. But Adam Harbrand is a knight, a good knight, chivalrous even, and yet he's in service of Tywin Lannister. And there's no hint that Adam is troubled by his service to the barbarous war crime of a campaign that Tywin Lannister inflicted on the Riverlands. In fact, if you flash back to A Game of Thrones and that council that was taking place in Tyrion's final chapter, Sir Adam was one of the voices urging Tywin to stay at war with Robb Stark. The point for characters like Adam Marbram in A Song of Ice and Fire and in literature in total and in general is that these good-seeming guys help legitimize the villainy of characters like Tywin. Readers like him because he seems like a good dude. Would a good dude be serving a monster of a liege lord? In point of fact, very much yes. And here we see Adam carrying out Tywin's order of having the entire force of gold cloaks out looking for Tyrek's body or person rather than securing the city or helping repair the damage from the battle. This might be uninteresting to a lot of folks, but I think this gives readers a pretty interesting insight into Tywin Lannister and how he governs and plays the Game of Thrones. Tywin really genuinely does not give a shit about the basics of how to exercise power on behalf of the people he's supposed to be safeguarding as a ruler. And look, for the record, I do think maybe a missing teenager is worth a search or two, but the entire core of gold cloaks on the case seems a little excessive, doesn't it? But as you were saying, this is Tywin treating his family as possessions, pieces to be moved on the Game of Thrones. At the same time, I also think that this search is a statement by Tywin. He can put the entire police force into a search for a single family member. In the communications world, Tywin is communicating that he's the new sheriff in town, and with the snap of a finger, he can make the entire police force bend to his will. As he'll say later about the 77 courses and 1,000 guests for Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding, extravagance has its uses. We must demonstrate the power and wealth of Castle Rock for all the realm to see. The Tywin can put all the cops in King's Landing on the case to search for one Lannister is a total extravagance, yet it's an extravagance that demonstrates Tywin's power. All power vortexes its way down from the top, and they get sucked right back up again. Tywin does have these like internally consistent arguments for his behavior that you know don't stand up to scrutiny, but you can see why they kind of make sense to him, and yet George keeps poking holes in them. Tywin's stubbornness about family doesn't prevent him from despising Tyrion and treating him like an outcast. And yet, despite being treated so poorly by his father, Tyrion has learned from Tywin. Tyrion also despises weakness. He says so in this chapter. He's trying to overcome his own weaknesses, and his father is about to rip open all of those wounds at once. Mm -hmm. It's been a good chapter so far, but now it becomes great. This scene expands on the first Tyrion-Tywin scene, back at the crossroads in Book 1. As I said then, their relationship is one of the most dramatically potent elements in the series. It's complex, but it comes through so clearly. You know how it's going to go as soon as he walks in and the succession music starts playing, or the Godfather music, or whatever dramatic music you want to put over the scene. <laughs> it worked perfectly. Tyrion's story in this book begins with his father and ends with him too, as Tyrion delivers George's thesis statement for their relationship. I'm you, writ small. Now, that's not to say their actions and worldviews are identical, but there's an uncanny sense that they are two halves of one whole, that this is really an argument happening inside one person's head. George builds that dynamic into every detail. When Adam Marbrand says that Tywin is in his solar, Tyrion thinks my solar. 
He's resentful about his position being usurped, but that phrasing reinforces the sense that at some level, Tywin and Tyrion are the same person. Tyrion says the hand chain looks handsome on his father, just looked better on me. And appearances are at the core of the grievances between father and son. Tywin is all about keeping up appearances. Tyrion can't do that. George reintroduces Tywin to us. It's been a while. He emphasizes Tywin's austere good looks, the flatness of his belly, the impression of sternness and strength. That's how he wants the world to see House Lannister. As Joanna tells Jaime in his dreams, he wanted to make it so no one would laugh at them. But everyone laughs at Tyrion. That's why he was shuttered away in a tiny room in Magor's Holdfast while Tywin and the Tyrells took over the city. He's inconvenient for the narrative his father is creating, the century of House Lannister, which will begin with Joffrey's wedding to Marjorie. For Tywin, this is his life's work. He can almost taste it. And here comes Tyrion with his sarcasm and his ghastly wound. <laughs> What's he doing here? In Drama 101 terms, what does Tyrion want out of this scene? A little bloody recognition would be a nice start. He wants his efforts acknowledged. He wants to be a true member of the family, reflecting his sacrifice in the battle. He wants his father's love. He has refused all of that. <laughs> he really is. It's uh, it, it's something that's really a compelling part of this dynamic is what Tyrion wants is denied him. And that makes this, this scene so compelling. One of the many things that makes this scene so compelling. And another thing that really stands out is something that might be a little bit under understudied and that's how small Tyrion's personality seems when he's standing in front of Tywin in front of his dad because if you remember throughout A Clash of Kings Tyrion was always the guy with the smart play the quick wit and he wasn't intimidated by those around him remember that scene where like where he's standing in front of Joffrey when he's having jo when Joffrey's having Sansa beaten by the by the king's guard like Tyrion was not intimidated by king Joffrey there that's not the case here in A Storm of Swords, because I think it's such a great touch for how George writes Tyrion, because Tyrion is clearly intimidated and his quips don't land at all. Tyrion, instead of Tyrion being a constant intellectual threat in this chapter, Tyrion is reacting and shifting to different stimuli around him. Because in Clash, Tyrion was able to get away with snarking his way through the book because he was the biggest political dog in King's Landing. But it wasn't through Tyrion's own skill set that he came into this position of power. Now, Tyrion is obviously skilled politically, but the point of fact is that this was all framed within the imprimatur of his father, Tywin. Tyrion had come to King's Landing with the express, with the express authorization of Tywin. Hell, Tywin seemed to have envisioned Tyrion as basically an extension of himself and his power in King's Landing. That filtered down into how Tyrion was able to carry himself in the city itself. The problem for Tyrion is that he started to believe that his own power base was because of his own action, personality, and policies. In retrospect, Tyrion's final thoughts from his seventh chapter from A Clash of Kings was Tyrion really buying into his own bullshit. It is real. All of it, he thought. The wars, the intrigues, the great bloody game, and me at the center of it. Me, the dwarf, the monster, the one they scorned and laughed at, but now I hold it all. The power, the city, the girl. That was what I was made for, and gods forgive me, but I do love it. While never truly forgetting his father, as we see throughout his internal monologues in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion started to believe that the game he was playing was one of his own making, that he had become powerful in his own right. This chapter displays this as a lie that Tyrion told himself, that no one had stood up for Tyrion after his wounding, that few had visited him, that he has two people 
Podrick and Braun left to him shows that the power Tyrion had was mostly borrowed from Tywin in A Clash of Kings. And with that unconscious realization, Tyrion's jokes don't land. His witticisms seem forced. His personality shrinks before his own father. Oh, that's great stuff, man. I think that's exactly right. Tyrion's realizing, oh, right, this is where I got this shtick from. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm kind of a, a kind of a pale copy when you, when you sent me next to the original. And even more than Bronn, Tywin is belittling Tyrion's courage, focusing only on his appearance. That wound is ghastly. What were you thinking? As Tyrion points out, Tywin would have nothing but praise for berserker heroism if it was Jamie. Tywin's rejoinder that Jamie would never remove his helm rings false when we remember the Whispering Wood. Tywin reframes Tyrion's desire for recognition as shallow and foolish. Mummers and monkeys require applause. For that matter, so did Eris. These are cruel comparisons, designed to call attention to Tyrion's disability. You are more monkey than man. You ought to be a sideshow performer. Throughout the conversation, Tyrion is being made hyper-aware of his own body. He's aware that he's climbing up on the sea. He thinks about how his nostrils would flare if he still had any. Tywin is trying to intimidate Tyrion, hence his unblinking stare. He wants Tyrion to feel bad about himself, stop standing up for himself, to internalize these insults. That will allow Tywin to rewrite recent history. He reduces Tyrion's efforts to the part you played, while claiming that he really turned the tide and that Cersei deserves more credit for getting the wildfire started. Tywin gives Littlefinger more credit than his own son. He gives Littlefinger the credit for the Tyrell marriage, and even manages to find fault with Tyrion making an alliance with Dorne. This is infuriating, for the reader as well as Tyrion. We know that Cersei had no real plan for the wildfire, and that the chain was considerably more than a clever stroke. Tywin <laughs> does that mealy-mouthed politician thing where he says, most people seem to feel that he won the battle. Which people? Most. Most. Many are saying. Some people have said, oh, really, Tywin, you had nothing to do with that. You're going to pretend that public opinion is a law of nature and you just walked backward into your reputation. Interesting. I mean, Interesting. I mean, Ty- Tywin Lannister is Donald Trump. I mean, you remember that all the, all the time, the way that he would phrase it's like many people are saying this. Other this people thing. are saying what people? Others. Others. Uh, uh, many. Many. Not other me, people. even though I'm not- saying it right now to you, but right. it's not me. <laughs> others. I'm- Oh my God! Yeah, I'm just uh, now I'm imagining. Yeah, they, they, yeah. Anyways, I'm gonna stop with the the Tywin Donald Trump parallels because uh, too much. And I think it's it's really true what you're saying because Tywin is embodying Varys's shadow on a wall because power lies where men say it lies. With Tyrion out of action, out of the limelight, Tywin was there to suck up all the oxygen of Westeros and write the narrative of the battle. I mean, think back to Sansa's final chapter in A Clash of Kings. Tyrion only comes up once. And that's in Sansa's head. He's not acknowledged by all of the many things that are being proclaimed from the throne room. Everyone else is rewarded by Tywin or his cronies, but Tyrion's deeds go unmentioned. At a level, this is the consequence of something you brought up so well in our Tyrion class chapters, that Tyrion is shit for PR. He might be an excellent politician, Mm -hmm. but he does not get ahead of his own PR. Mm -hmm. He only manages to capture the zeitgeist once once and that's at the blackwater where his men shout half men half men but there was no concentrated pr effort for Tyrion to rally the small folk or even the nobility to his cause instead Tyrion did a lot of work to keep joffrey in power work that was easily co-opted by tywin because Tyrion hadn't put the work in to capture the love of the people i mean i was thinking here i mean you know tywin does acknowledge his chain 
But why didn't Tyrion end up naming the chain after himself or do name one of the trebuchets after something that he was doing or do something that would have a- amplified his work in King's Landing? It doesn't, it's now we're seeing the consequences of Tyrion's lack of his own PR were coming into focus here at the start of A Storm of Swords. He's uh, learned the model of ruling through fear from Tywin and that's let him starved for love as you can see so clearly in this scene. The only unguarded <laughs> praise Tywin offers is that Tyrion's chain was a clever stroke. And then he immediately bitchily follows it up with, is that what you wanted to hear? (laughs) Well, yes and no. Those are technically words of praise, but the warmth behind them is what's missing. Despite Tywin keeping his distance, George keeps reminding us of all these two have in common, especially their penchant for hiring cutthroats to do their dirty work. Tyrion may have sold out his father's pet monster Gregor to the Dornish, but as he realized in Clash of Kings, he has his own baby killer on the payroll, namely Bronn. No matter how much Tyrion and Tywin resent each other, they are each other. There's no getting away from each other, and that finally overflows in full. Tyrion walks toward the door and then turns back. George pauses to note that he'll regret it, letting the audience know that something (laughs) truly awful must be coming. Earlier, Tyrion couldn't quite put into words what he wanted from his father. It was both primal and inquit, and too painful to broach, too intimate, too earnest. Tyrion likes his irony. But now, finally, he is sincere. He wants Casterly Rock, because it's his by rights. His by rights, that sounds familiar. (laughs) Which character have we heard that from a whole lot before? Hmm? Hmm. Stannis, of course, and just as Stannis wants the throne as a proxy for the love he never got from his brothers, Tyrion wants the rock as a proxy for his father's affection. Like, who knows what Tyrion would actually do as Lord of Casterly Rock? He never really thinks about it. That's not what this is about. It's about getting Tywin to stand up before the realm and declare that Tyrion is his son and he's proud, etc. Tywin initially faints, as he's been doing all scene, pretending that Jaime is his heir. Tyrion points out the obvious. Jamie gave up the rock along with pretty much everything else when he took the white cloak. Naming Tyrion the heir would just be following protocol at that point. Right. And in fact, George did address the issue objectively of Jamie inheriting Castley Rock and a so spake Martin right after his Storm of Swords was published in the United States. Uh, Elio Garcia asked, if the Kingsguard forswear wives or inheritances, how can Jamie Lannister be heir to Castley Rock? George R. Martin responds, simple answer, Lord Tywin is in denial. If he admitted that Jaime wasn't heir, he'd have to admit that Tyrion was, and that he has a hard time swallowing. Denial is such an interesting choice of words to describe Tywin, as many folks mm-hmm. like to think of Tywin as this cold, calculating, Machiavellian type. He's just doing things because they're the right things to do, even though they're hard and cold, and he can't put emotions into it. The truth, as we see in this chapter, and as George talked about before with the word, the use of the word denial, is that Tywin's belief system is deeply rooted in his emotions. It's not quite as objective as his bullshit would make it out to be. Yeah, that's a great point. And that denial, I think, holds true also for, for Jamie and Cersei and what they've been getting up to together. Because I think at some deep, deep level of cognition, Tywin knows about that too. <laughs> but yeah. he's, just, he's just managed to keep a wall up and, and Tyrion is making that impossible for him. And so Tywin stops dodging and looks his son right in the eye, like looking at his reflection in the mirror. George describes Tywin's eyes, a pale green flecked with gold, as luminous as they were merciless. This grounds us in the moment. It's like we're sitting there as everything goes still. Tyrion's future depends on the thoughts behind those eyes. And then Tywin speaks. 
Casterly Rock, he declared in a flat, cold, dead tone. And then, never. (laughs) That word is like a weapon, as George describes it. Huge, sharp, and poisoned. Killing the person Tyrion could be. As Tyrion thinks, he never brought it up all these years, despite how obvious it was, as you say, that Jaime had given up the rock. He must have known that he would be disinherited in the end, that he would never be welcome, that his own family has rejected him. Even if you weren't raised by an abusive parent, I think most of us are familiar with this cold kind of relationship that suddenly goes hot. So much has been kept just beneath the surface. So many insults have been bitten back that there's a hideous catharsis to it all bursting through. Why do you hate me, father? Why have you finally given me a chance only to take it away? Why do you take everything away? Because you took her away. You killed your mother to come into this world. It's a statement so hateful and unjust, it still makes me wince just viscerally, as if Tyrion had any control over that, as if he didn't lose out on a mother when Joanna died. Grief twists even the strongest mind, but Tywin owed Tyrion reassurance after that. He owed him even more love than normally, and he didn't do it. And that is the original sin of their relationship. Everything bad, everything poisonous comes from that. You're absolutely correct that time is being incredibly hateful and unjust. And yet, I, I can't help but feel this works so well within the context of the character of Tywin Laster because Tywin's coldness to Tyrion, really, to anyone, was always present in the character of Tywin himself. But there was a passage that a lot of people have pointed out from the world of Ice and Fire and how Grand Maester Pycelle described Tywin and Joanna's relationship. Only Lady Joanna knows the man beneath the armor. Grand Maester Pycelle wrote the Citadel, and all his smiles belong to her and her alone. I do avow that I have even observed her make him laugh, not once, but upon three separate occasions. I mean, granting that Pycelle is the ultimate fucking suck-up among the, the, the Lannister retinue and in the small council, I, I do think Tywin loved Joanna in his own way and let down his wall-sized guard around her. And in Tywin's mind, Tyrion took Joanna away, stripping Tywin of his emotional core and his connection to happiness. It's not Tyrion's fault. Not, not at all. He was just a baby, and Tywin blaming Tyrion for Joanna's death is supremely evil and unjust. Yet it makes character sense for Tywin to be this way to Tyrion. It's in keeping with who Tywin is. And Tyrion's lifestyle, his choices only prove how right Tywin is to hate his son. In Tywin's mind, anyhow. Right, that's the thing. Like, Tywin isn't wrong when he calls Tyrion devious, disobedient, and spiteful. Yeah, Tyrion absolutely is all of those things. He absolutely is full of envy, lust, and low cunning. We've seen Tyrion's POV. We have seen all those things at work. But Tywin has never made any effort to help Tyrion improve himself, because Tywin prefers to think that Tyrion isn't his son at all. That's why he brought up the Mad King earlier, because he wants to believe that he could never make a son like Tyrion, only Aerys, only the king who belittled him. Moreover, Tywin blames Tyrion for things for which he's just not responsible. Not only Joanna's death, but Tywin blames Tyrion for his own disability. You're a little creature, and it pains me to watch you waddle about wearing my proud lion. For Tywin, Tyrion represents the fear that nothing he does will be good enough, that he will never erase his father's shame nor the Mad King's mockery. 
He claims the gods sent Tyrion to teach him humility. But if so, they failed. He claims that Lion was proud when it was his father's sigil, but Tywin famously resented his father for behaving a lot like Tyrion. That's what's really going on here. Tidos shamed Tywin by carrying on publicly with his mistress, and so Tywin is determined that Tyrion will not turn Casterly Rock into your whorehouse. As Tyrion says, this is like dawn breaking. He understands now why Tywin's acting this way. Tywin had Aliyaya whipped, just as he had Taisha gang raped, to teach Tyrion a lesson. Your body belongs to me. I can't hurt you for all the shame you've caused me, so I'll hurt them instead. Because for Tywin, sex workers are even more inhuman than Tyrion. I don't care about their names. I don't care if they live or die. And the next one I find in your bed, I'll hang. And yet, Shay shows up in Tywin's bed instead. And it was probably Tywin who had that tunnel into Shataya's built. Tywin pays for sex, like his father before him and his son after him. The only difference is, he does it secretly. So even as Tywin hates his father and son for bringing shame to the image of House Lannister, he probably also resents them for not feeling shame, for being able to do what they want in public. This is the ultimate connection between father and son. When Tywin looks at Tyrion, he sees who he would be if he didn't feel the need to repress his own desires. He can't stand that, so he takes it out on Tyrion. Tywin is just so full of shit. As we'll see when he dies, he's as full of shit as it's possible for a person to be. Tyrion was happy in the last book, or as close as he's been to happy since Tysha. Now dad is home, and the party is over. Tyrion has been stripped of his position and his protectors. Not only that, but he's lost the dignity he briefly felt, the sense that for once in his life, he was where he belonged, doing what he was born to do. Over the course of this book, his bitterness will rise until he snaps, the steady escalation of proxy violence spilling over into patricide. And you know, I can't blame him. Tywin has finally made plain that he does not consider Tyrion to be a person, let alone his son, who deserves his love and respect. He will not allow Tyrion to live his life. He had it coming. Yet killing Tywin will still break Tyrion, because at some level, he's killing himself. It's not Tywin who hangs Shay, who strangles her to death. No, it's Tyrion who does that. As he says, I'm you, writ small. That is brilliantly said, sir. You really nailed the dynamic of how Tyrion killing Tywin culminates the character arc of both men. Yet Tyrion lives on in a way, and his act sends him spiraling into the abyss all the same when we catch up with him at a dance with dragons. The first act of Tyrion's Song of Ice and Fire arc is one shrouded in tragedy, unhappiness, and it all extends from the puppet strings of Tywin before him. And Tywin's own unhappiness extends from the puppet strings from his father. Tytos made Tywin miserable, and Tywin in turn made Tyrion miserable. Though Tywin never killed his father the way that Tyrion will do at the end of A Storm of Swords, he did so metaphorically by shaming Titus's mistress, marching her naked through the streets of Lannisport, killing the shame his father had brought Tywin. But that shame that Tywin thought he had banished came back with Tyrion, a son who became the way he did due to the evil that his father inflicted on Tyrion and on Tysha. Tyrion's relationship with sex workers is a natural consequence of how Tywin had Tysha brutally gang-raped and how Tyrion came to believe that he was unlovable due to his dwarfism. So in turn... 
Tywin helped foster a version of his own father into Tyrion, which led to his father hating him more as Tyrion reminded Tywin of Tytos. But the original sin of Tyrion Lannister went far deeper as we've been talking about. Tyrion killed his mother. Tywin's smiles had died with Joanna as a result. The hatred left behind was focused on Tyrion, and the end result was that Tyrion ends up truly killing his father. Not metaphorical. And remember towards the start of the chapter when Tyrion thought he had to inflict the same shit on Tommen as was inflicted on Aliyaya? At chapter's end, Tyrion claims that he likes Tommen, that he would never truly harm the boy. And yet, that's exactly what Tyrion was going to do until Bronn told him he didn't have Tommen anymore. Shit rolls downhill for House Lannister generation upon generation. It's a sad, pathos-laden tragedy, and I think A Storm of Swords really brings that entire dynamic home. That opening line from Anna Karina that we've quoted before, that great, that great Tolstoy line, is worth citing here at the end of this analysis of Tyrion 1. All happy families resemble one another, but each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Heck yeah, we saw that with uh, Catalan 1 last week. The Tullys also are unhappy in their own way. Speaking of them, moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, <laughs> Tyrion is right that Heron Hall is going to mean more than an empty title to Littlefinger. And he will think back on this conversation when Littlefinger uses that title to propose a match to Lysa. So that's that's one of Littlefinger's more brilliant moves, I think, is realizing he doesn't really need to set foot in Heron Hall. All he needs is that title and suddenly everyone will accept him as the potential consort of the Vale. Yeah, so I, I did reread that chapter today and I was I was thinking back to this chapter and it's it's very clear that Tyrion's like Dad, this this guy's really bad. He's not planning on doing the a good thing with this this uh this house and with this castle. He's going to be using it against us. And this guy is easily able to betray his friends, as we saw with Eddard Stark. He is going to betray us yet again. And though we have not seen the full consequence of that in a Song of Ice and Fire, I do think that is what is what Littlefinger is ultimately aiming at for the Winds of Winter is really turning against House Lannister now that he has his castle had Lysa and also has the Veil of Aaron as well. Uh, so he's got the Veil and he's got Harrenhal. The potential remains that they could have both the Riverlands and the Veil come the Winds of Winter side with him in whatever plans he ends up uh, executing in the Winds of Winter. So Tyrion promises himself in this chapter he needs to look into the matter of Renly's ghost. But it's actually Jamie who finally gets the truth out of Loras that it was in fact Garland. And this isn't a big reveal. It just ends up being kind of funny in the moment when Loras has to admit that, yeah, I wasn't as big and tough as Renly <laughs> so I, I couldn't wear his armor kind of a humiliating moment but yeah yeah even Tyrion it's interesting how many threads are set up here that Tyrion kind of has to follow up on but kind of really doesn't because he gets consumed with the Mandan more one specifically even though you know that's kind of past its sell-by date for him it's funny like that how that revelation is is kind of like comes out because it's like kind of set up as this big thing at the end of a clash of kings and the start of a storm of swords but it's almost like kind of an anti anti-climax in terms of that reveal because you're like wait renly is alive you're like no we we absolutely saw him dead was he resurrected you know we've seen some resurrected characters that we see in a storm of swords but no he wasn't resurrected it was just garland terrell wearing the armor uh of renly for for the battle itself which i think is is a pretty cool uh revelation it comes i believe it comes at the purple wedding doesn't it or is it right after that when when jamie returns to king's landing yeah it's after i think it's during their uh, little little white swords meeting that after he gets back mm-hmm. yeah it's it's cool I, I i enjoy that reveal quite a lot even though it se- kind of seems like an anti-climax ultimately and then finally for foreshadowing groundwork tywin promises rewards for Tyrion as befits his service as it turns out this to this turns out to be one of the um one of my least favorite subplots slash plots for Storm of Swords, and that is the marriage to Sansa Stark and a claim to Winterfell. 
Of course, this goes really well for Tyrion. They have a happy marriage, and he gets Winterfell, I believe, if I'm remembering A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons correctly. Somewhere in between the pitch letter and the real text, somewhere somewhere in there he got Winterfell. <laughs> but of course, instead, things uh, go worse and worse for the Starks over the course of the book. And that brings us to our, our uh, theory and discussion portion for the episode. And I, think, I thought it would be a good idea to just check in in terms of where we are with the Red Wedding. Because this is a very important chapter for Red Wedding foreshadowing, and Red Wedding foreshadowing is something we're going to be talking about a bunch in Storm of Swords. So let's start things off right here. It's uh, funny. Tyrion thinks to himself, a dead enemy... Tyrion's actually... He says out loud to his father in this chapter, a dead enemy is a joy forever. He's uh, thinking about Mandon Moore. He's thinking to himself that the true enemies are on his own side. But without knowing it, he's also describing his father's plans right now, which is to make a dead enemy out of Robb Stark. It, you know, Ty- Tyrion asks Tywin, when are you, you going to go back into the field? When are you going off to fight Rob or Stannis or someone? And Tywin, you know, he never takes his big shiny new army into the Riverlands to fight Rob directly. And politically speaking, I'm not sure that he could. The Tyrells are averse to straight fights. And as we'll see in a later Tyrion chapter, they don't really care if the North is independent under the Greyjoys, ideally, but they're not inclined to fight for it. Instead, Tywin has to turn Rob's coalition against itself, first using Roose Bolton to whittle their numbers before unleashing the phrase. As he says, some battles are won with swords and spears, others with quills and ravens. And Duskendale is a prime example of how that works. In the last book, we saw Roose send out Robert Glover and Helmand Tallhart to Duskendale, pretending his orders came from Rob. Tyrion is smart enough to see that this doesn't make any sense. No strategic purpose is served by sending Northmen to the Crown Lands. Even more suspicious on reread is how many details Tywin knows. The names of the northern commanders, how many men they have. There's really only one person who could have told him that, Roos, with his control of communications from Harrenhal. This is a purge of Stark loyalists, making sure that Roos and his Frey in-laws outnumber Rob when the knives come out of the twins. Nevertheless, as George himself said, Roos keeps his options open all the way. Robic Lever doesn't make it back from Duskendale in time to reveal Roos's treachery to Rob, so potentially Roos could stick with the Starks even after this point if things went awry with the Lannisters. Mm. The Freys haven't fully committed to anything yet either. My guess is that Tywin's letter to the twins is informing the Freys of the coming battle at Duskendale, reassuring Walder that their side will have the greater numbers. Maybe his letter to Roos is informing him to leave any other Stark loyalists at the rear of his army when he when he marches, because we do get those other Stark loyalists who die at the Ruby Ford, although maybe the specifics for that come later. For me, the big question is whether Tywin is in contact with Sibel at this point, whether he's in contact with the Westerlings about arranging that Rob doesn't have an heir. And we'll talk about the more evidence for that in later Catelyn and Jamie chapters. There was plenty of Red Wedding foreshadowing in Clash of Kings that we covered. We talked about Theon's nightmare about it, Danny's vision in the House of the Undying, Roose's schemes that I just mentioned when he sends out uh, Glover and Tallheart. But this chapter is really where it ramps up. And George does such a perfect balancing act of giving us everything we need to figure it out while preventing us on the first time through from actually doing so. Tywin doesn't answer Tyrion's question about his next moves <laughs> against Rob. He just says, oh yeah, Battle of Duskendale. He doesn't actually answer the question of what are we doing about Rob Stark? And he quickly <laughs> changes the subject. He's keeping it hidden from Tyrion and so therefore from us. I think you were talking about the letters and boy, would I love to see those letters going back and forth between Tywin and Bruce and Walter Frey mm-hmm. starting at the end of A Clash of Kings as we saw that one raven reaching Harrenhal. And, uh, and I had speculated back then that might have been one of Tywin's opening overtures to uh, to Bruce Bolton there and uh, seeing the start of that relationship. Uh, the interesting thing about where we're at with the Red Wedding is how, as you were saying, Bruce was still not quite committed to it. 
Because as George, George talked about this right after a Storm of Swords was published, at least the UK version of a Storm of Swords. As for Bolton, if you reread all his sections carefully, I think you will see a picture of a man keeping all his options open as long as he could, sniffing the wind, covering his tracks, ready to jump either way, even as late as his supper with Jamie at Harrenhal. Roos's supper with Jamie at Harrenhal is significantly later than this point here in A Storm of Swords. And what George seems to be implying is that while negotiations were at work and Roos was actively sending Northmen into harm's way, he still might not have gone through with the Red Wedding. And read a certain way, Roos could have simply been kind of framing this as a way to kill off Stark loyalists to enhance his power in the North, even if he doesn't go through with the with the, with the the Red Wedding. And this is a similar dynamic as we discussed in the Game of Thrones with, with the Green Fork and what Roos Bolton was doing in sending all of the Stark loyalists into the battle while retaining his own troops and ensuring that they were not killed. But let, let all those dudes, those Manderleys and everyone else who were fighting on behalf of, of Rob Stark and who actually liked the Starks, yeah, they could all fucking die, but Roos's men are staying behind. But Tywin is not fully read into Roos Bolton's thoughts, and my guess is that Roos was probably telling Tywin that he was committed without truly being committed to the cause here. Still, as we're going to find out in later Tyrion chapters, it's not as if Tywin was really all that committed to Roos Bolton anyways. Because Tywin is going to mention that he'll find rewards suitable for Tyrion in this chapter. And as I mentioned earlier, this reward turns out to be Sansa Stark. But the reason why Tywin is planning to wed Tyrion to Sansa is so that he can put a Lannister claimant onto the throne room of Winterfell and name Tyrion as Lord Defender and Lord Protector of the North. And yet, this was part of the price for Roose to turn on Rob. Him being named Lord Protector of Winterfell and Warden of the North and having Ramsay legitimized and named the Lord of Winterfell. This is such a great dynamic to kind of start a storm of swords with as rereaders because it's wheels within wheels and everyone is plotting betrayal. Even the betrayers plan to betray each other ultimately. It's kind of like a big old welcome to the storm, isn't it? Exactly. This is definitely the, the pattern and structure of a storm of swords and that's what makes it so exciting and complicated as we'll get into at length when you get to that that dinner scene between Jamie and Roos, and Roos is just kind of laying out almost for his own pleasure. Here are, here are all the factions at work, and I'm just, just going to thread the needle. And it's such exhilarating stuff, even as the content itself is so devastating. It's awesome, and I can't wait to do more of it. It's so much fun to be back here doing a Storm of Swords with you, man. And, and for all of the folks who are listening or watching, it's a, it's a, it's a real joy to to have this back in, in our lives. So it's, uh, it's great. I love it. I'm just re-loving A Song of Ice and Fire and re-loving you more and more every single day doing this with you. So Likewise, bro. Uh, we got to finish with a love fest every single episode, man. So as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to those of you who have been watching this episode. If you have, have, if you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda B. Fish on Twitter, Brenda B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is brendabfish.substack.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words. Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay. 
Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bulinda Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merifull Head Affair, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wilder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wilder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Narco Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stone Haven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planeto Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Warden of the, Le- Warden of the Lake, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you folks so very much for supporting us every single month. So, join us next week for a Storm of Swords Davos 1, in which we check in with the losers of the Battle of the Blackwater. Who cares about them, man? They fucking lost. Eh, Boo! Why do we even have Davos <laughs> chapters in this book? That's going to be the mood. Oh, yeah, I think that will be the mood for Davos chapters, right? Man, we get to go from my favorite point of view character to your favorite point of view character in just two weeks' time frame. So, it's a three weeks' time frame. So, it's all really good stuff. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons again for supporting us. And we'll see you next time for Storm of Swords, Davos 1. <laughs>